0: Welcome to Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. This podcast series is compiled from Dr. Whitney's university class entitled Justifying Beliefs. The thesis of this class is that we all hold beliefs, and no matter what they are or how deeply we adhere to them, we owe it to ourselves to apply rational testing of our beliefs in order to aim to justify them. This class takes us along that journey, perhaps for the first time or more deeply. For further insights and materials mentioned in this series, please refer to the resource page on Facebook entitled, Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney.
1: God's perspective, um, our perspective. Some people say, this is a short one, and then I'll talk about it from our perspective. So, why isn't the evidence clear? I think this is a fundamental document. And It's better than going through the proofs just to know the perspective of this thing. It's not clear from God's perspective for good reasons. God does not want to overwhelm us. God wants our free love offer, just like our parents do. That's that's the simplified version. There's a lot more in the web document and a lot more that could be said. From the scientific point of view, science is looking in the wrong place with the wrong method. A lot of people think that if God still exists, why doesn't he do what he did supposedly in the New Testament and the Old Testament? Where are all the miracles? Where's Moses parting the Red Sea, and and, you know, and where's Jesus' miracles? Like, isn't that? Don't we need evidence? Wouldn't that help us believe? If if God were still performing miracles, and the fact that there aren't all these miracles happening, is that not evidence against God? Well, you know, if you don't believe in miracles, it's it's, and they are happening if you're in the right places in this city. You know, in in lots of churches, healing miracles and all kinds of of, of healings from psychological to physical, we've seen them. I mean, anyone that associates with solid Christians, I think, sees them. It's it's insane to say that they would stop. So the answer to that is, uh, why isn't the evidence clear? Why aren't there more miracles? Number one is that the scientific, naturalistic world says that miracles can't happen. And a lot of us have fallen for that trap. Um, We believe it that if science can't condone a miracle as something that's valid, because nothing can violate a law of science, supposedly. I can't wait till next week when we look at that one. I'll save it. But the miracle question is not as simple as the scientists make out. Miracles can happen and do happen, and it's a fallacy to think that because science doesn't like miracles, And because the naturalistic world of science, which means the opposite of supernatural, there's no spiritual, there's no miracle, there's no God to perform them for science, so they deny them. We've fallen for that as a culture far too much. That skeptical worldview is still with us. So the the answer is, you're looking in the wrong place if you're looking for scientific proof, and you're probably looking in the wrong place if you have this naturalistic, scientific, skeptical attitude about them. A miracle could probably drop on your head like a piano, and you wouldn't see it. You'd say it's just bells and whistles. They happen all the time for people who believe. Uh, I'm not saying that it's it, it, you know you know people can say I wish I could fly. I wish I could have a zillion dollars. We're talking about legitimate miracles. I, I you know I wish this. Well, it's a long story. We'll talk about it next time. Um, one last one. What about why isn't the evidence clear from not from science perspective or the perspective of miracles are from god's perspective, but from our perspective. Jesus gives you in Luke sixteen right at the end of luke's gospel sorry right at the end of chapter sixteen he gives it this has got to be a, um this has got to be um at least irony if not just straightforward comedy, but it makes a very serious point. He gives a parable but a guy who died, Lazarus. He's not the one he raised from the dead. But ra- Lazarus is this rich man who wines and dines during his life. And he's got this beggar lying at his door. And the beggar is just covered with sores and boils. And Jesus says the dog licks the sores. And he's just begging for crumbs. Lazarus ends up in hell, of course, in, in this parable. Under the Earth, which the Jews believed at that time. It's a long, complicated story, but we hopefully get to the hell chapter. And if not, it's there for your Christmas reading and your summer reading. Um, Lazarus finds himself in hell, and he finds Abraham down there. And, and to make a long story short, he's, he, he says, Is there some way I can go back or send send me back to life, to the world, so that I can warn my family? that they should live a better life than I did because I don't want them suffering down here. So raise me up so that I can go and tell them. And Jesus hits them with this line. The answer of, of Abraham was, even if someone was raised from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. And that's, of course, exactly what happened to Jesus. But he's saying, I've given them the moral law. I've given them the prophets. I've given them all they need to know to lead a moral life, a godly life, so, why should I believe that someone rising from the dead will convince them when all these other things haven't convinced them? It's a gem. It's ironic. He's predicting his own, um, the skepticism at his own rising from the dead among a lot of people, but not all of them. So, from our perspective, it's, you know what it is? It's this, from our perspective, we don't see the evidence if we have presuppositions and biases against it. There's evidence for God if you're looking for it in the right way and in the right place, with the right frame of mind, but you don't see it. The person beside you, you could see it, and someone beside you could not see it. We're all at different stages spiritually. We're in a skeptical culture that doesn't believe, you know, unless it can be proven rationally by science. What we should do, if you really want to know there's a God, you should, because science, and rationality can't really conclusively prove or disprove God, it doesn't answer the question. What you should do is to put away your scientific skepticism. Put away your biases, your rational obstacles. You get rid of those obstacles. It, like, it's a huge rock to say, I can't believe in God, I can't see the evidence, because this huge boulder is blinding me. The boulder is called the scientific method. It's in the way. I can't see anything except science can't prove God. It can't be true. Near-death experiences don't. The occult doesn't. Nothing proves God. I- I'm blind. There's evidence there, but you first of all have to get rid of the boulder. You have to get rid of the obstacle. You bet on faith. This is, by the way, this is famous stuff. It's called Pascal's Wager. Um, it- it's going to sound crude, but it isn't. He's saying, Because we don't know rationally whether there's a God or not, what would be the harm? Now, what he's trying to do is encourage skeptics to take up a religious attitude, to drop their biases, so he says. What would be the harm of wagering? Not pretending, but just living as though there is a God. Associate with religious people. Do what religious people do. Just try to pick up on their language and how they think and how they believe and try to cultivate belief in God. And you can do that if you put away your skepticism. And here's the wager he's saying. If you can cultivate a belief in God, you have nothing to lose except your skepticism. And if there is no God in the end, well, you probably had a better life because you've had a, you've had belief and you've had a feeling of peace and comfort. But if there is a God at the end, um, not only are you fulfilled in this life by believing, but you have an eternity to look for. On the other hand, if you don't wager on God, if there isn't a God, you have nothing to lose. You just, but if there is a God, you have everything to lose. This is like famous stuff. There's more to it than the wager. He's really trying to say, you don't believe because you just don't get it. You've got this obstacle that, that blocks belief. But if you can just ignore the obstacle for a while and feel what it's like to believe, associate yourself with people who feel that way, then I will wager, not only will your life be better now, but you have a chance if there is a God, even if it's a million to one again. He was a mathematician. He invented calculus and all kinds of strange things. He was a major guy, like a major scientist before he became religious and had an experience um, of God's presence. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Pascal said it's to your benefit to wager that there is a God because you don't know rationally or not. You have everything to gain, nothing to lose if there is a God. If there isn't a God, there's nothing to lose except a better life now. Um, and, and reason can't settle the issue. Pascal is known as a faithist. But you know, after he says, here's the, the important point I left out. Pascal says, once you have faith in God and you pick up what that means, a relationship with God, God answering prayer, like living a spiritual life, developing your spiritual qualities, maturity, you start seeing the evidence then. And you, you, you there it is. The, the world's beautiful. And, and this is why God waits and doesn't cure my sin and, or, or my disease. God has made me a better person with a little bit of tolerance and perseverance. I can understand that now. Like I'm saying, the evidence comes when you have faith. So he's a faithist. But he does then go and say, now you can see the evidence in the Bible, right? You couldn't see it before. So he does use an apologetic. He does justify belief in miracles and prophecies and all of that later. But he's saying you only see it if you're open to the evidence. So to make this thing, bring it to a conclusion... From the human perspective, the evidence isn't clearer because we are looking at the evidence through biased eyes with obstacles that blind us to it. And people of faith will tell you that when you cultivate faith, when faith starts growing, the evidence is just obvious. Like, it's there it is. It, 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 it's a whole new way of doing apologetics. A lot of people are going back 300 years saying, maybe this is what we should be doing to justify belief. Maybe we should start with faith tell people that reason and evidence aren't going to solve this thing, so why don't we just give up on all of that and just be faithful people? Just live like religious people do and see what happens. And lo and behold, that's, that's probably what you do. Um, I want to show you three arguments for God's existence. Cosmological, teleological, and give another shot at the moral. And because it, I think you need to know Something more than you do at this stage, at least unless you've done it somewhere else, more about how we justify our religious belief in God. I think the most powerful argument is the cosmological. I think the second most powerful is the teleological. And uh, the moral argument, I think, is important as well. But at least, at least those three. This is going to be really simple. And I, I hope you understand that there's an awful lot being unsaid here. Um, I'm only making this simple. I don't want to rob you of the most important belief we have, belief in God. All right. This is the cosmological. That word, by the way, means cosmos plus logos. The cosmos is just the universe and logos is rational. So this is a rational argument from the evidence of the universe itself. This one comes from Aristotle 2,500 years ago, but it's been revised by Aquinas. Probably going through this argument, you'll see why classical apologists like that classical apologetics is is uh, for the intellect rather than for faith. But I think this, this helps if you believe in God or don't believe in God. To see an argument like this at least makes you wonder if you don't wonder about whether there might be a God, and if you do believe in God, I hope it gives you some intellectual support that your belief makes sense rationally. If you want the slogan version, it's, if anything exists, God must exist. That's, that's, that's what this is all about. If anything exists, God must exist. So this is a, this is a logical argument based on the existence of the cosmos. Cosmos Logos. Logical argument based on the existence of the cosmos, of the universe. You know, the odd part about this argument, Aristotle invents it, but Aristotle's God was an impersonal force. It wasn't a personal God. It wasn't a God that was conscious. It was simply the first cause, the primary cause of everything. But Christians especially St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, used this argument as a Christian argument. And it's been used uh, ever since. Um, now, premise number one, all things are contingent. All that is saying is that everything that's ever existed on this earth and in this universe, as far as we know, is contingent, which means dependent on something else For its existence. We're all contingent. Everything we've ever seen is contingent. Everything is caused by something. We were caused by our parents. It's a kind of strange way to do it. You could go, you could use a temporal sequence and say, we were caused by our parents, they were caused by theirs, they were caused by theirs. But if you go back far enough, the universe began. So the question is, number two, the premise is, You can't have an infinite regress. You can't go back, your parent, their parent, their parent, their parent, their parent. Eventually, it started somewhere. We can't have an infinite regress of contingent beings. Now, the PSR means that the principle of sufficient reason says there has to be a sufficient reason, a sufficient cause to explain everything. It's just a fundamental principle that can't be proven But it's taken, it can't be disproven, and it's assumed that everything that happens, like if I drop the pen, it it dropped for because it was caused to drop. Nothing happens without a cause. The principle of sufficient reason, you can just see this question on the final, the principle of sufficient reason says everything has to be explained with a sufficient reason. There is no such thing as an uncaused event. It's hard to... The reason I'm saying this is is one of the criticisms of this argument is going to be to say that maybe there is an uncaused event. And I don't think it makes any sense. I think the principle of sufficient reason is something that we assume is valid. Every effect has a cause. It doesn't mean that everything's determined. That's been a mistake among some people. It just means that everything that happens has a cause. Now, if you believe the principle, now, see these first two premises, everything's contingent. If anyone disagrees, like, say your piece, I can't think of an exception. There isn't an exception. Everything, so that one's true. To have a legitimate argument, the premises have to be clear and they have to be true. The terms have to be defined, all of that stuff. It's worth looking at sometimes. That one seems to be true. Everything is contingent. Everything ever was, that ever existed, is contingent. What about this one? There can't be an infinite regress of contingent beings. Therefore, it kind of goes with number three, there must be something that's non-contingent. Now, this this is an example, this argument, of, we call it modal logic. It's... It's not the only version of the cosmological argument. There are five or six versions, but this one comes from logic, modal logic. It's the logic of necessity and contingencies, and, and, and like logical opposites. This one is the one we use because the other ones are are weaker. What this is saying is the opposite of contingent is necessary. There's only two choices. Either you and I were caused. I'll give you three choices, in fact because of the principle of sufficient reason. We have three choices. Either you and I um, were caused, that means we're contingent, or, number two, you and I and everything that exists in the universe has no cause, but that would violate the principle of sufficient reason, which says that everything has a cause. So, the only, the only option is, either you were caused by something, like everything else was, you have no cause, or you're necessary. Now, does anybody feel that your existence is necessary? Like, uncaused, primary, always existing? What this argument is saying is, if you think rationally about the universe, you see that everything is caused by something else, but everything can't be caused by something else. That can't be the only kind of thing that exists, because there's no first cause. There's nothing that can explain why we have a universe. Like, there has to be something that's not a contingent thing. And the only the only option, there must be a necessary being. And that's what we mean by God. Now, Aristotle didn't say that. There must be a necessary being. And he would say something like, that's what I mean by the unmoved mover. That's what I mean about the first cause. But Thomas Aquinas said, that's what we mean by God. You get it? Like, how can you explain the universe? Just think contingently, like going back in a lineal sequence. We know now, by the way, we didn't know this when Aquinas lived. Um, we didn't know this until maybe 1926, I think it was, when Hubble discovered the redshift that the universe was was moving outwards. You know, at a fast pace, that the universe was expanding. And that told us, if the universe is expanding, then it must have started somewhere. Like you can actually go back in time from where we are now and realize that there must have been a time when the universe began. Do you know that until Hubble discovered that, that red shift in 1926, that most people thought that the universe had just was just always here? It just existed? It wasn't created? Now the theists know that God creates the universe, but the scientists were saying, the universe just is self existing. It's just always been here. But now we know because of Hubble, the redshift, showing that the universe is expanding, and because in 1960, what is it, 1976 and 1967, somewhere in there, we discovered evidence of the Big Bang. And now with the Hubble telescope, we've discovered even more evidence that the universe began with an explosion. Spontaneous generation, which is sarcastically called the Big Bang, but science doesn't like that word, but that, 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 that's what we call it. What I'm saying is, we know the universe began. So the argument is, the question is, how did it begin if everything we see is contingent? We couldn't create ourselves. A contingent being is something that's caused by something else, by something else, by something else. There has to be something to account For why there's something and not nothing. If anything exists, God exists. Why there's something and not nothing is because deductive, rational thinking says there must be a first cause, an uncaused cause, something that's not contingent, something that's necessary. That's what we mean by God. Now, the basic religious doctrine for theists is that God is the creator, and this fits. Like One of the criticisms of this argument will be, how do you know the uncaused cause, the necessary being, is God? Well, that's what we mean by God being the creator. God being powerful enough, self-existing, non-contingent, nothing, God depends on nothing, God simply exists, See, this is an argument for God. If if you say, well, what caused God? That's a good question, by the way. A child asked that question, and a physicist asked the same question. The answer is that nothing. There has to be something that isn't caused. And there has to be an exception. There has to be a necessary being by the laws of modal logic to explain why there's contingent beings. It's that simple. If you've grasped it, that's all there is to it. It gets complicated, though, when you see the criticisms. But if you get the argument first, that's all we need to worry about right now. The criticisms, we won't go in detail, but I just want to show you what they are. See, for every... This, to me, science still doesn't like to admit. I'm talking in general. Bradley's going to tell you this. It doesn't like this, this cosmological argument. It, it finds it very difficult to admit that the universe began. The minute you say the universe began 15 billion years ago, 18 billion years ago, whatever science actually agrees that it did, this big bang, then you have to account for why did it begin. It can't be the universe itself. It can't be a contingent thing. Contingent things don't have the power to create themselves. They'd have to exist. It doesn't make sense. There has to be, by logic, a necessary being. And science knows that they're saying things like uh, maybe there were multiple universes multiple dimensions maybe some kind of quantum physics fluctuation all kinds of strange things to avoid the conclusion that the big bang is now th- the main compet- it's the main scientific theory that seems to be verified by just about everything the H- hubble telescope the the bell people the bell telephone people who actually discovered the uh, the evidence of the Big Bang and the static radiation coming from all corners of space at the same time, evidence that there was a beginning, and then Hubble's redshift showing us that there, in fact, was a beginning of the universe, that it's expanding. So the Big Bang is being resisted by science because it implies there's a god, there's a first cause, and science doesn't like that conclusion. So, here are the criticisms. First criticism is something like, um, why does everything need a cause? Why do you assume the principle of sufficient reason is, is is valid? See, what we're saying with the argument, again, I'll stick that back on for a while then. Why do we say that there can't be an infinite regress? Why does everything need a cause? One of the criticisms is going to be, now here's, here's the theistic argument for God. No other option except God makes any sense. I better give you the options first, and then I'll give you the criticisms, because it it makes more sense this way. Here's the alternatives to what this first cause could be. If you admit that the universe did in fact begin, the question then becomes, how did it begin? Why did it begin? Theists are saying, this is our argument for God. God's the only legitimate, rational explanation for why the universe began. God must have created it. That's what modal logic confirms. There has to be a necessary being. Now, here's what the philosophers and the scientists say. Instead of having God as the first cause, why can't we say, and this is the philosopher at Ann Arbor University, a major philosopher. I'm not making this up. He's saying, why can't we say the universe had no cause? It just exists without a cause. I'm serious he says that that's what philosophy does they say things that are absolutely outrageous i'm telling you the principle of sufficient reason in your experience and in mine tells us that everything that happens has a cause and the implication is the universe has happened it has to have had a cause and it can't be a contingent thing it has to be necessary it has to be a nece- so the philosophers are saying this guy's name is quentin smith it's unbelievable. All these articles he has on the web saying that this argument is invalid because the universe doesn't have to have a cause. It just exists. Now you tell me that makes any sense. Tell me how you can say that the universe just exists. To me, that's not an argument. That there, there's no evidence that something, let alone anything, can just exist. There is no evidence that it can just exist without a cause. So our experience, maybe the universe is an exception, but what he does is to say, one criticism of this, this is why this argument doesn't convince everybody that there must be a necessary being which we call God, because you can sit back in your philosophy class and tell your students, the universe doesn't have to have a cause. The universe just exists. Jean-Paul Sartre agreed, Bertrand Russell agreed, if you know some of these famous atheists, but this is Quentin Smith. Um, Ann Arbor, philosophy department. As far as I know, he's still there, unless he's been fired for incompetence. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. This is, next, next year we'll look at this stuff, we'll read him, we'll see his logic, he's got a point. I just You're just getting the bottom line without all of the evidence. We don't have time for the evidence in this class, but I just want you to know what the arguments are. Here's another one. But we can't use this one anymore because the Big Bang has now been verified. But until then, and there are still people saying it, that the universe doesn't need a first cause because it's eternal. It's just self-existing. It's infinite. There are still people that believe that, but I don't know. They're flying in the face of their own scientific evidence which says, no, it did begin. So what I'm saying is the alternative to God being the necessary being that created the universe is either... There's no cause, which makes no sense to me anyway, or that the universe just exists eternally, infinitely.
0: Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us for the next episode as the journey of justifying beliefs continues.